couldn't be here this morning. He's off doing something else. And every now and then, he likes to remind the congregation how lucky we are to have him as a pastor. <laughs> Which is why I'm preaching this morning instead of Michelle and Wes. <laughs> uh, we're going to be continuing the Invasion of the Lamb sermon series on the Gospel of Mark this morning. Uh, now, some time ago, when Mike asked me if I'd be willing to take the podium and preach today, uh, he asked me to preach specifically on Mark chapter 9, verses 2 through 13. Mark chapter 9, verses 2 through 13. I was flattered, and I confidently said yes. And let me tell you why I said yes with such confidence. Because I had spent the entire previous year personally working through the book of Mark as part of my normal Bible study and my normal uh, uh, scripture reading. I read numerous commentaries. I mean, I really I, I annotated my Bible, underlined stuff. I felt pretty secure. So when he asked me to preach on a passage from Mark, I had all the confidence in the world, told him yes on the phone, went home, opened up my Bible, started flipping through Mark, seeing all of my margins just filled up, stuff underlined, highlighted, and, you know, if I'm honest with you, being pretty smug and self-satisfied. Then I get to chapter 9, turn the page, and it's pristine. <laughs> There's not a comment, not a pencil or pen mark anywhere. Nothing's underlined, a completely blank page, just the word of the Lord. And uh, confidence kind of drained out of me <laughs> pretty fast at that point. So then I look, and, you know, in certain sections of your Bible, they have headers, you know, kind of clue you in what, what that section's on. And this one is titled, The Transfiguration. And I looked at that, and I thought to myself, I have no idea what that means. And I had read the Gospel of Mark, I don't know how many times. Like I said, I've read numerous commentaries on it. I've just been a year doing nothing but thinking about Mark every morning. And I'm looking at the page, and I've got nothing. I've got absolutely nothing. So, Mike and I have a good enough relationship that I'm pretty confident that I could have called him up and said, Hey, buddy. Maybe I can do another passage a little better. Maybe we could you know, rearrange or, or I could do something new. I, I had that option in my back pocket. But instead, I chose to see this as the hand of the Lord in my life. Basically letting me know two things. One, I really shouldn't be skipping stuff in the Bible. <laughs> Probably not what he intends. Number two, um, that I am not nearly as uh, knowledgeable and learned as I think I am, which is a lesson he has seen fit to teach me repeatedly <laughs> over the years. So here I am today. So what I did is I took that challenge and I dove into this passage and did a lot of research on it. I did a lot of thinking on it, a lot of praying on it, and I am really excited to share with you this morning what I found and what I thought in regards to the transfiguration of Jesus. So, uh, before we do anything else, let's hear the passage itself. Okay? So I'm going to read it out loud. If you're looking in the black Bible that's in front of you, it's on page 844, I believe. And if you brought your own Bible, I'm going to trust that you know how to navigate it on your own. Uh, so here we go. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, 
one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. But he didn't know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud and said, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. There's our passage. As I said, this passage is known as the Transfiguration. We're going to break it apart a little bit this morning. But first, I want to talk about what this passage means to Christianity as a whole. Why this would be considered important before we dissect it and look at it. And just for the record, I timed Mike for three Sundays to see how long he takes up here. So if I seem like I'm going a little long, it's his fault. <laughs> I got a lot to tell you guys. I'm excited to share. Uh, all right, so first of all, there are five major milestones in the gospel story. When we talk about the Gospels, specifically Synoptic Gospels, there are five major milestones, and they each are enormously important and have significant weight on theology and Christianity as a whole. And these major milestones excuse me, are the baptism of Jesus, this passage, the transfiguration of Jesus, which is also called the transformation, either or, uh, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, and the ascension. Of Jesus. Now, mainstream Protestantism has a tendency to focus primarily on the death and resurrection. And we kind of take the ascensions and we kind of wrap it up in the resurrection and kind of treat it as one and the same, even though they're two distinct events. Um, the baptism is still important, but a lot of times what you'll find in a Protestant church is it's kind of minimized. It's used simply to illustrate the existence of the Trinity. Because, you know, that's when you get to see God in heaven and Jesus down below and the Holy Spirit descending on the dove. Ha ah, Trinity, yay, there it is. And that's pretty much the extent that we usually see the baptism, you know, dusted out and used. So, uh, the transformation is largely overlooked and forgotten. And I'm saying that because I'm projecting on all of Christianity the fact that I had no idea what it was. So, <laughs> largely overlooked and forgotten. Nobody knows about the transformation. Uh, in reality, though, when we closely examine each of these events as separate things, we realize that they have a multi-layered, deep significance, both for Christianity and theology, and this significance can be drawn in isolation from the other four milestones. What do I mean by that? I mean that the death of Jesus has enormous significance in and of itself, apart from the resurrection. That the baptism easy, important, and mean something for who we are today in our lives with Christ, even on its own, without the other pieces involved. It can stand on its own feet. So, we're looking at the transfiguration. What's that significance? Why is that important? It does a number of things. First, it identifies Jesus as the Son of God in a public way. Now, we've already heard the voice of God 
in the baptism, right? Already said, you are, the, you are my beloved son. But who is the recipient of that message? God is speaking to Jesus in the baptism. You are my beloved son. Of you I am well pleased. Here, God is speaking to the public, which happens to just be three guys, but that's still an external proclamation. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. That make sense? Separation there? The other thing is that listen to him part. Now, we know that Jesus is God. We have the grace and the benefit of hindsight. We've got to remember those, the characters in the story, the disciples, Peter, James, and John, who are hearing this, they don't know everything we know. So when God, <laughs> the voice of God says, listen to him, what he's doing is he's giving a divine uh, validation to any and all of Jesus' teachings. And this is really important because most of what Jesus says throughout the gospel goes completely against all religious thought of the day. Completely contrary to what everybody knew and believed. So for the disciples who are following this guy and supporting this guy and preaching his message, to hear the voice of God say, yes, he is correct, listen to him, believe what he is saying, that has an enormous impact on them, which then in turn has an enormous impact on the church as it goes forward. Um, the other thing it does is it uh, clarifies the importance of Jesus in the Jewish narrative by putting him on a mountaintop with Moses and Elijah. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about that in a second. Uh, the final thing is it reveals Jesus' divine nature before the resurrection and before the ascension. And if anybody here knows a little bit about early church history, you should know that this completely blows a lot of the early heresies out of the water. One of the biggest fights that the church got into internally for the first couple hundred years is, what is the nature of Jesus? Is he God? Is he man? Is he sometimes God? Is he sometimes man? At what point is he God? And this reveals him to be divine before the ascension and the resurrection. Some of, these, some of those conversations never need to happen. Never need to happen. So, that's the importance and the significance of the transfiguration of Christianity as a whole through the years. Now, something I found that I found really interesting when I started researching this, okay, is how it plays into the saintly signs of the imitation of Christ. Really big title, simple concept. Basically, what this is, is, well, I'll lay it out like this. Who knows what stigmata is? Anybody? Anybody heard that? It's more than just a horror movie. Stigmata? Yes? All right. Bleeding from the hands and feet, right? Well, in the early church, if you were, say, a very holy individual that was well-respected and clearly in touch with God, and you started bleeding from the hands and feet, they would think and say that you are so holy and so in tune with the Lord that you are imitating Christ on a physical level. And this was something that usually helped identify that individual as a saint. It wasn't a prerequisite. You didn't have to have the stigma to be considered a saint. But if you did, man, that helped your case. Man, that application got filled out real fast. Okay? So stigmata, right? Um, the Western church has often seen that connection and that focus. What's interesting to me is the Eastern church has no recorded instances of stigmata. Not a one. Not one of their saints 
ever showed that. Now, that's not to say necessarily it didn't happen, but if it did happen, they didn't think it was important enough to record and write down. Instead, what we have is we have saints uh, in the Eastern Church, such as Seraphim and Silouan, being transfigured by an inward light of grace, imitating this moment, this passage, instead of imitating the crucifixion. And I'm going to talk more about that also in a few minutes. But I wanted to throw it out there now so that you guys can see how this passage was so important to Christianity as a whole through the years. Okay? All right. Well, let's break it down. Let's talk about the individual verses a little bit. Um, there's so much going on here. I'm only going to scratch the surface. But I'm going to tell you about the surface things that really kind of jumped out at me that I feel like... Uh, that the onus is on me to share. Okay? So, the beginning. Mark tells us who went with Jesus. We've got Peter, James, and John. In today's age, when we read the Bible, we have a horrible tendency to interpret it first and then read it. Instead of reading the Bible and hearing what it's saying to us. So I'll give you this great example. And, and you can see it here. Um, I want everybody to close your eyes real quick. If you promise to open them and not fall asleep on me. Um, close your eyes real quick, and I want you to picture in your head what comes up when I say Peter, James, and John. All right, open. Now, for most of you guys, so maybe some of you not, but most of you guys are picturing their iconography. Okay? You're picturing middle-aged dudes with beard, robes, serene expression, chorus of cherubs in the background. Peter, James, and John. These are our apostles, right? These are figures that are so connected to the divine that we automatically kind of cast them in that role. Let me destroy that for you. Let me just kick that to pieces. Uh, at this point in the story, Jesus is younger than I am now by about half a day. He's a young guy. John, of the three, is the only apostle who's not martyred. All the rest of them die for their faith. John doesn't. John makes it to the end and lives to the ripe old age of 94 and dies rethinking about the year 100. Okay? That would make John about 22 or 23 at the time of this story. And his brother James and his buddy Peter are going to be about the same age, give or take a year or two, 25 at the most. Think about the 22-year-olds you've known in your life or you know right now. How many of them do you think could start a major world religion or could be accepted by elder clergy as being more in tune than experts of God? Think about that. That's enormously important. But we've got to think and read the scripture the way it's actually presenting it to us or we risk losing so many important things. So, uh, I'm going to... Oh, coincidentally, James is the first apostle to be martyred. James is the first apostle to be martyred. Uh, he's killed by Herod, or on the orders of Herod. Herod has put to death by the sword. And I think that's Herod Agrippa, for those of you who keep in score on all the various Herods in the Bible. There's quite a few of them, and it gets a little confusing. So this would be Herod Agrippa. Okay, he, he gets an apostle on his, on his score sheet. Um, 
I'm going to read verse 2 again because James and John, their, their nickname is the Boagadus, which I'm mispronouncing, I know, and I don't care. It's some funky Greek word from back in the day, and nobody is around who actually speaks that kind of Greek anyway, so don't listen to the expert when they correct you on pronunciation. Could be it. I'm going to call it Boagadus. Um, but they were nicknamed that probably because of their temper. So now I'm going to read verse 2 again, but I'm going to say it a little differently for you guys. Okay, so here we go. After six days, Jesus took with him the rock and the sons of thunder. Paints a little bit of a different picture, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. The rock and the sons of thunder. Yes, I watched a little bit of the WWF when I was a kid. <laughs> so this, this touches me in a very special part of my childhood to be able to say this. And I'm going to call them the rock and the sons of thunder for the rest of this, just so you know. Um, but let's, let's pay attention to the fact that in this group of three, we have the first apostle who's martyred and the last one to die. We have the beginning and the end of the apostleship. And we have Peter. And we forget the importance of Peter a lot, I think. Because we have so many letters from Paul. And Paul had such an impact on us. We cannot ignore what Peter has done for the church. And you know what Peter did for the church? He started. He started. Uh, Peter is the reason we have Christianity today. Paul's the reason why Europeans have Christianity today and Africans, and people in Australia, and people in South America. Paul's the guy who spreads it all around, and he wouldn't have anything to spread at all if it weren't for Peter standing up in a crowd on Pentecost and giving a speech that's recorded in Acts chapter 2. If you look at Christianity from a historical or sociological perspective, we're looking at it as a movement, a revolt, a, religion, a, 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 a revolution, that's the turning point, is that speech. That's where Christianity goes from being a messianic movement whose leader has been killed to a major world religion that changes creation. Right there in that moment. So that's important to Peter. So these are the players. These are who we've taken up with us on top of the mountain. Okay? Um, and what do they find out on the mountain? Hopefully they find their place in their notes first. Uh, where does he take the rock and sons of thunder. He takes him up the mountain where he's transfigured. Now, in the Old Testament, the mountain is where you go to meet God. In the Old Testament, God's happy to come meet you anywhere, and sometimes that doesn't always work out in your favor. But if you want to go and meet God, you're walking up a mountain. Later, you're going to the temple, but only certain people were allowed to go to the temple. The mountain is where you meet God. In the Old Testament. So, here we go. Uh, examples of that, you've got the sacrifice of Isaac. You've got Moses, Mount Sinai, the beginning of the law. Elijah goes up Mount Horeb. Uh, it, it's just there. And Jesus is changed and his clothes become supernaturally white. In Jewish mythology, angels are often described this way. And in Daniel chapter nine, me, chapter 7, verse 9, I messed that up in the first service too, God is described this way. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as the snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. And his throne was fiery flames, and its wheels were burning fire. The rock and the sons of thunder are seeing Jesus 
the way Daniel saw God. So they get to the top of the mountain, Jesus changed, and they see he's talking to Elijah and Moses. Now this would have been huge to them. I can't convey to you really just how huge it would be for them to see him up there talking to these two guys, Moses and Elijah. The closest I can give you is I have two boys. I have a six-year-old and a seven-year-old, Jonah and Micah. And if Jonah and Micah walked out and saw me dressed in spandex talking to Superman and Captain America, <laughs> it would fry their little minds. <laughs> okay? They would be so excited and awestruck that they would short-circuit and probably collapse. It's the same thing. That's about as close as we can get to. These are the superheroes of early Judaism the central figures, and here's Jesus having a casual conversation with them on the mountaintop. Uh, there's a couple different ideas out there why Elijah and Moses. Uh, I'm going to tell you my idea, because I get to preach this morning. If you want to learn the others, you can research it on your own. Uh, my idea is that when we place Moses and Elijah and Jesus together, what we've got is we've got the complete... And three, excuse me, we've got three distinct chapters in the story of the people of God. We get the whole narrative. We've got Moses as pre-promised land wandering tribes and the establishment of covenants. We've got Elijah as worldly kingdom and the days of the temple. And now we have Christ. We have Jesus as the spiritual kingdom and the fulfillment of those covenants that Moses is shepherding through the wilderness. You get the whole story in one glance on top of the mountain. Uh, so Peter, perhaps trying to fathom this impossible situation, offers his three-tenths suggestion. I mean, what do you do? you got to say something, right? Can I get you a seat? We can, uh, we can make you a place to rest, uh, hang out for a little bit. I, I don't know what to do here. I'm seeing Elijah and Moses and then Jesus with them as an equal, my rabbi. Uh, this would have been huge to them and to him. And immediately following that, just as he's kind of stuttering out this suggestion, the cloud comes. Now, we've seen God represented as a cloud before. It's in Exodus, and it's in 1 Kings. Uh, so they're on top of this mountain, and they're completely caught up in this supernatural fall. That envelops everything, covers them, and obscures them, and then they hear the voice of God, and it says what he says, that this is my beloved son, listen to him. And then in an instant, the moment ends. It's gone. No Paul, no Elijah, no Moses. Jesus is just like a normal dude, looks like he did when they walked up the mountain. But they've still got the echo of the voice of the Lord. The back wall. And the sound of a sound. Probably ringing out over that mountain. I can't imagine how terrifying and world-changing this experience must have been for these three men to experience this. And it's not presented as allegory. Let's make that clear. When Mark's telling this to us, this is not a cute story. We get that from Peter and his tent suggestion. It, it made, it's pretty clear that this is an actual thing that happened and was witnessed. This really did occur. 
and uh, so the digestiveness and the walking down, and they get the now familiar gag order. If you are following along with us in Mark, then you know that Jesus is constantly saying, don't tell anybody about this. Don't mention this. Don't let anybody know. <laughs> yeah, that was cool. We're not going to talk about that, right? <laughs> There's a clue here. And it's pretty important in Bible. And we're going to miss it. We often miss it because of all the supernatural crazy stuff that's happened before. Right before in this section. But here, Jesus, for the first time, he says it different. For the first time, his silence order is not absolute. We've gone from saying, don't tell, to don't tell until. For the first time they hear, do not, uh, where is it exactly? He charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. Why is this important? This is important because this is a major transition in the story of the Gospel of Mark. Up to this point, Christ is wandering through the hillside, living in the moment. He's healing people as they need healing. He's teaching as the opportunity arrives. He's going from place to place, and he's living a reactionary ministry. At this point, we see and we understand, now he's following the plan. Now we're on the path to the cross. No more is this reactionary. Everything from here on out has a purpose. It's a step forward to the passion. Okay? So this is where the story changes and we see God and Christ moving in the direction that we expect and hope for. Um, now, something I find really amusing is they debate about what rising from the dead can mean, but they don't have the courage to ask Jesus. They completely chicken. Instead of asking him what they're actually talking about, they ask him about the Elijah prophecies instead. Uh, well, so why the jump from resurrection to Elijah? What, what happens there? What, what's the connection? Well, this is not the first time in Mark where Jesus mentions rising from the dead. But it is the first time that we see the disciples wrestling with the concept. Now, Jews at that time believed that all would be resurrected at the end of days. The end of the age, the end of the world. Some of them didn't believe in resurrection at all. There were certainly seg uh, uh, factions that just completely abandoned the whole idea. But if you, if you accepted that, then you tied that with the end of the world. This is the equivalent of Jesus saying to them, don't worry about that. When the sun explodes, it'll all make sense. <laughs> Sorry, what? <laughs> can I, can, while we're talking about, can I put that on my calendar? You got a date? I've got some credit cards I need to max out. Some places I need to go. If we're talking about the end of the world, I'd like to kind of, you know, hit my bucket list. They don't know what the connotation is that we understand looking back. Okay. Um, now the prophecies they're talking about when Elijah is concerned is they come from Malachi chapter 3 verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And Malachi chapter 4 verse 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. What's missing? Go back and read what Jesus says. Elijah does come first to restore all things. 
There's no mention of restoration in those prophecies. It's not there. So where does that come from? Well, it's probably an allusion to the writings of a guy named Ben Sirah, who was a scribe from two centuries prior to Jesus. And here's a quote. You, speaking to Elijah, so you, Elijah, are destined, it is written, in the time to come to put an end to wrath before the day of the Lord, to turn back the hearts of fathers towards their sons, and to reestablish the tribes of Jacob. Sirach, chapter 48, verse 10. Uh, Jesus goes on and talks about how he's written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be shown contempt. No one in the Old Testament has ever written about the Son of Man. It's not there. Does that mean he's wrong? Of course not. We're talking about Jesus, right? All that means is we have to look and see what it's telling us. Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man in the same way that he refers to Peter, excuse me, Simon, as the rock. Peter. Same way he refers to James and John as the sons of thunder. That's his self-retriential title. I am the Son of Man. So he's not trying to connect that passage to Scripture. So what is he talking about if he says it's written? Most likely he's talking about Isaiah and Psalms. Isaiah 53, verse 3, He was spurned and avoided by men, a man of suffering, accustomed to infirmity, one of those from whom men hid their faces. Spurned, and we held him in no esteem. Psalm 22, verse 7 to 8, But I am a worm, hardly human, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me, and they curl their lips and jeer, they shake their heads at me. Sounds kind of familiar if you're looking at the end of our gospel. Now Mark has already set up John the Baptist as Elijah in his first chapter. Okay, we get that from the beginning. He opens with that. Elijah is John the Baptist. So why is this so shocking for the disciples? Why are they asking about Elijah? Because they don't have that information. Again, we the reader and the listener know that Mark has identified John as Elijah. But Peter, James, and John have no clue. This is where they find out. This is when they start to put the pieces of the puzzle together and realize, oh wait, these prophecies are being fulfilled. This is happening. Okay, so that's the important there. Uh, nowhere is it written in the Old Testament either that Elijah's got to suffer or that they will do to him as they please or that he will die on his return. Now Jesus is clearly alluding to some writing that he holds as scripture. More than likely it's a book or a passage or a letter that we just haven't found yet. Or hasn't been revealed to us yet. But again, remember that the Bible is a collection of books and writings. And at the time of Jesus, different groups and people running around would have different ideas of what would be considered scripture and what's not. Now later, the church was able to codify that, make a decision, and let us know which ones we should focus on and consider from God. But that didn't happen until hundreds of years after Jesus had come and gone. So we got to kind of take a grain of salt there when we look at that. Um, there are plenty of stuff out there where people are desperately trying to connect this with what we do have. Uh, my favorite is where they take Ahab, who was a king who desperately wanted to kill Elijah, and connect him to Herod. Well, because Herod gets to do what Ahab really wanted to do and try to draw that connection. And it's there, but you've got to stretch really far. I think it's much more likely that we're talking about something we just don't have. Um, 
I'm more interested personally in the restore all things phrase. Since we have cast John as Elijah, I believe that he restores all things by introducing the practice of baptism into Christianity. For are we not restored in Christ by being baptized? It's because of John the Baptist that we have that practice, that we are able to be reborn in God through the act of being baptized. This, to me, is how Elijah has restored all things in the gospel. What's the thought? Okay, so having worked through the passage, admittedly kind of fast, and places pretty simplistically, the question for us is now, how does this apply to me today? Is there something here that I should take away and use in my life? Well, of course. Otherwise, the Bible just becomes a history text at that point, instead of a living, active, organic element of who we are today. Always up for option B. Always up for option B. So, what is here that we need to take and digest and apply? I've got two answers for you. Okay? The first one goes back to the stigmata, transfiguration, western, eastern point I made at the beginning. I was talking about the impact of transfiguration on the church. It's commonly held that the age of miracles is over. Okay? You don't see people walking on water. You don't hear recorded stories of people rising from the dead. And the church's response to that through the years is, well, no, the age of miracles is done. We're in a new age now. I wholeheartedly disagree with that. Completely. And I bet you you do too. If you've ever asked God to act in a prayer, heal this, provide this, protect that, you're asking for a miracle. That's what you're doing. You're asking God to act in a way that breaks the established rules of this world. Just by acting, God is providing us with a miracle. I think here in the West, in our focus on logic and physical external effects, remember the stigmata, we have uh, forgotten or ignored the internal and emotional ones. We want a recordable stigmata on our saints, not a sudden transfiguration that's hard to witness or explain. That's kind of who we are and who we've developed into. We also live in a culture that's obsessed with keeping up appearances. And I think that comes into play here. Uh, you'll never find my father in public without his hair brushed. That's who he is. You just won't. I have a job, and I go to a lot of events at work. And in the summer, people ask me, why am I still wearing a coat and tie when I'm clearly sweating bullets and in distress? And the answer is, is I have to keep up appearances. I have a job and a title that carries with it certain expectations of behavior and looks. It's the world we live in today. We have to keep up appearances. But, uh, oh, in fact, I'll take it a step further. If my grandfather were alive, he would be scandalized that I got up to preach for you dressed like this. Sandals, roll-up sleeves, unshaven. He would be horrified. It's Father's Day. That's my excuse. <laughs> I'm going to be comfortable. Um, this is just not how you go to church, much less preach. 
We've got to keep up appearances. That's important to who we are. But I wonder, I wonder if we have allowed our obsession with appearances to progress to the point where if we were transfigured from within by a light of grace, as Seraphim and Selwyn were, would anybody be able to notice? Would we recognize what was happening and crush it, deny it, hide it for the sake of keeping up, keeping up appearances? Have we become so focused on the sinful physical world that we live in that we are blind to the spiritual and emotional changes that are happening all around us? Mark my words. Whenever somebody finds Christ and accepts him into their lives, that is a miracle. And it's just as important as rising from the dead and walking on water. We need to recognize it as such. For anybody in this room who's ever been moved by him, comforted by the act of prayer, felt changed by reading scripture, you are living in the age of miracles. Embrace it. Accept it. Share it. The, uh, the second thing we can learn and apply from this passage is a lesson of humanity. We often overlook, I think, or forget the fact that Christ was fully human. He was fully God. And we get that, and we know that. But we read the Bible that way. And we, uh, just as we tend to see Peter, James, and John as holy old men instead of the youthful rock and the sons of thunder, we paint a picture of Jesus that ignores what is being said, and in ignoring it, loses some very important messages. Jesus was human, okay? Jesus was human. Jesus was fully human. And I'm not trying to say that Jesus was not perfect. On the contrary. In fact, what I'm saying is that Jesus shows us what it means to be a perfect human. You flip all the way back to Genesis. You'll find that God created us in his image. He didn't make us gods uh, or even have the potential to be gods. We're not doubles. We're not clones. We're images of God. We were human before the fall. Us being human is part of the plan. Okay, But there's a version of humanity that is the intended version. And there's a version that we have today which is tainted and corrupted. And Jesus on his time on earth is present to show us what we are meant to be a reflection of. What parts of God we are supposed to be reflecting as images of him. Uh, Jesus is human. He ages. He bleeds. He dies. He's tempted. He experiences emotion. And that's the part we tend to overlook. That's the part we gloss over. Jesus is afraid. There are passages in this gospel story where we see that Jesus is afraid. Jesus experiences love. Jesus gets angry. Jesus gets violent. Now, I know we like to cast him as a pacifist, okay? And I'm not trying to comment on that. 
on whether or not pacifism is something we should or shouldn't accept as Christianity. That's, that's not where I'm going here. But we can't ignore the fact that he drives a bunch of people out of a temple with a stick. Okay? This is not him casually poking them in the ribs with a twig. If that's what you're picturing when you read that story, you need to read it again. And then you take the blinders off. Instead, what you need to see is you need to see Jesus with a baseball bat swinging away. He's flipping over tables and he's screaming in that passage. That is a violent story. Okay? Now, I don't think he hurts anybody. He makes it pretty clear in his ministry that he doesn't want to physically cause harm, stops Peter from chopping up uh, the guys arresting him, etc., etc., etc. But we can't deny the fact that we see Jesus behave in human ways. Okay? He gets thirsty. He gets hungry. And the Gospels make a point of showing us that God has the love and the respect for us to go through everything that we experience. And we should pay attention to that. And we should learn from that. And we should notice what he doesn't experience. Because that's just as important. Jesus has love. He's full of it. But Jesus never struggles with lust. Okay? He comments a whole lot on greed and materialism, but we never see him affected by it or struggling with it in any way, shape, or form. He heals a bunch of people, but he himself is never sick. The only physical ailments he has are those that are inflicted on him by others. Maybe, maybe the things we don't see Jesus struggling with are not part of God's plan. Maybe these are things that are not of God. They have no place in the kingdom. Maybe we should look at our own lives and our own struggles and identify to ourselves what things we are struggling with that we weren't meant to be. So what in this particular passage can we learn about being human? What is revealed when we turn the lens of a human Jesus to Mark chapter 9 verses 2 through 13 and our transfiguration story? Bear with me. Jesus singles out Peter, James, and John all throughout the Gospels. Okay? He picks them out as special ones. Maybe that's not because they're his second in commands and he, the general was taking the lieutenants with him everywhere he goes. Maybe because Peter, James, and John are his best friends. What happened up on that mountain? It's probably going to happen anyway. Why take Peter, James, and John? Because he wanted to share it with his friends. Okay? And why is, why is he talking with Elijah and Moses? I think we can see here in Mark chapter 9, Jesus is realizing it's time to face his fate. It's time to move towards the cross. And he's reaching out for support. Mark doesn't tell us what they're talking about. But Luke does. <clears throat> Luke says that they are discussing his departure and what is to happen in Jerusalem. So why is Jesus talking to Elijah and Moses? Well, first of all, he knows them. These are old friends in contrast to his new friends, which he has brought up the mountain. Second, they're experts. They're the voice of experience. They've gone through the things that he's about to go through. Moses led a frustratingly unfaithful and completely oblivious people... <laughs> Through 
the wilderness to the promised land. And guess what? Jesus continues to try to lead our sorry souls to the kingdom today. Okay? Uh, Elijah suffered greatly to fulfill God's plan and did it by challenging authority figures. That's what we're going to see Jesus spend the rest of the Gospel of Mark doing. Suffering greatly, challenging authority figures. He's reaching out to the people who've done it before. That's what he's doing here. Uh, Jesus has hard times coming. He knows it, and he's reaching out to his friends for support. What we have here in the Transfiguration story is the example of how God expects us as humans, as reflections of him, to cope with hard times and trials. This is a divine commandment to seek strength and comfort and knowledge in fellowship. That it is wrong and ungodly to quietly suffer alone. <clears throat> So let's see what that should look like. We have Jesus including his current friends and being open and honest with them. We need to do the same. We have Jesus reaching out to now distant but still strong and valued friends. We need to do the same. We have Jesus seeking advice and wisdom from those in a position to give it. This too we should do. But most importantly, the biggest linchpin on this whole thing is we see Jesus do this in the presence of the Lord in a way that includes and involves God. And that, more than anything, we need to do. Now, I've got personal <laughs> friends in the audience in the first service. I've got family in the audience today, here. Uh, some of them never set foot in this church before. And some of you are personal friends that I hold near and dear to my heart that I've met through this church. Uh, and it's because of you that I have to confess that I'm being a hypocrite, and I know it. I'm a difficult person to help. I'm very good at hiding when I'm in trouble. I, uh, I'm one of the last to seek help. I know that. I need to work on this as much as any of you do. More than most of you. But this is something I can do better. I think this is something we all can do better. If you're an introvert, this is a call to open up more often, even if it's just a select few. It's also a call to be more available and receptive when others need to open up to you. Okay? If you're an extrovert, this is a call to be more selective to who you open up to and about what. Make it a special thing. It's also a call to ground yourself and be respectful when someone opens up to you because it may be much more difficult for them than you realize. Be respectful of that. And, at the risk of getting in trouble, I'm going to comment that the gender stereotypes come into play a little bit here. All right? So we all know guys don't talk about their feelings, right? And women talk about everything, right? That's the gender stereotype. Well, guess what, ladies? You're not up to hook here. I know you talk about everything, and maybe some of you already talk about these things, but stop and really think, when was the last time you sat down with your girlfriends and said, I think I hate myself a little bit? When was the last time you sat down and said something like, I'm worried I married too young, and I'm missing out? When was the last time any of us, guy or girl, doesn't matter, 
said, I don't feel connected to God. And I haven't for weeks. When was the last time you had the courage to reach out to someone and say, I don't remember what it feels like to be happy? Some of that needs to be addressed, obviously, with medication. And there's no shame there. But, as Christians, you need to involve Christ in all of your trials and struggles. And here we see that involving Christ means reaching out to your support group. That this is important. That this is godly. It's the scary things we need to talk about. It's the things that throw aside all notions of keeping up appearances completely. Leave us bare and at risk. The risky things. Now, not every conversation needs to be a harrowing of the soul. I'm not asking you to run home after this sermon, call up your best friend, and completely unload out of the blue. That is not, not what I'm saying here. <laughs> this is not a command or call. This is a reminder that God does not mean for you to suffer alone. That this is not his plan. That he has specifically placed people in your life so that you have the emotional support to continue in your journey towards him. Okay? And it, just as important, he has placed you in the lives of others that you can provide the support for them when they need that. From the beginning, the church has been about community. We are united through the table. We are united through our beliefs. We also need to be united in our help and support. So as you go home, try to identify the people that you trust and would reach out to. Try to identify the people that you would want to reach out to you. They may be in the same circle. Most of those people are going to be the same, wearing the same hat. But do not forget that you are not meant to suffer alone. Pray with me.